story is told of a Catholic priest, a Pentecostal preacher, and a rabbi who all served as chaplains to the students of Northern Michigan University in Marquette. And they would gather together two or three times a week for coffee and to talk shop, to share notes, thoughts, whatever. One day, obviously, they had too much time on their hand. Uh, They made the comment that preaching to people really wasn't that hard, and a real challenge would be to preach to a bear. And one thing led to another, and the bets were on the table, and they decided, hey, we're going to take a seven-day experiment, go out into the woods, find a bear, and preach to it. So at the end of the seven days, they all gathered together once again to discuss the experiences, and Father O'Flannery spoke first. And they noticed that his arm was in a sling, he was on crutches, and had various bandages. He said, well, he says, I went out to the woods, and I found me a bear. And when I found him, I began to read to him from the Baltimore Catechism. Well, that bear wanted nothing to do with me, and he began to slap me a boot. So I quick grabbed me the holy water and sprinkled it all over him, and saints be praised, he became as gentle as a lamb. The bishop's coming out next week, first communion and confirmation. (laughs) Reverend Billy Bob spoke next. He was in a wheelchair. He had both arms and a cast and a leg and an IV drip and his best fire and brimstone oratory. He proclaimed, well, brothers, you know we don't sprinkle, we dunk. He said, and I went out and found me a bear, and I began to read him from God's space, the holy word. But that bear wanted nothing to do with me. So I began to wrestle with him. We wrestled up one hill, downhill, another hill, up another hill, down another hill, and finally we found a creek, and I slam dunked him. <laughs> and sure enough, he became gentle as a lamb. And then we spent the next four days just in the word. Finally, they looked down at the rabbi who happened to be laying in a hospital bed. He was in a body cast, had traction with IVs, monitors running in and out of him. The rabbi looked up and said, Oi, the preaching was easy. He said, But the bear got a bit touchy when it came to the circumcision. <laughs> you know, that, that story in a humorous way, you know, conveys the danger of focusing on the externals of religion and neglecting the heart. You know, and that's the message of Luke 11 where Jesus conf- uh, confronts some deeply religious folks, you know, men who were practitioners and codifiers of the laws of God, yet their hearts were far from God. Externally, it seemed like they had it all together, but Jesus, as is always the case with God, does not look at the outward appearance. He's not fooled by it in any way, but at the inner man or at the heart. And so if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 verses 37 through 54, we're going to continue to examine the sin of hypocrisy that we looked at last week by asking once again the penetrating question that becomes very personal, and that is, are you a hypocrite? Based on the standard that's laid out before us, the objective evidence, you know, are we guilty of the same sin of hypocrisy and not even know it? And the problem with sin is sin is so deceptive. Uh, It's hard to see it. It's a snare. It's a trap. It's darkness. Uh, It's easy for others to see in our life, and it's very difficult at times for us to see. And it is perfectly obvious to the God of the universe who created us and a perfect and righteous God who looks at each one of our lives and says, Hey, you know what? I see things that you don't even begin to understand. And when we go into his presence and we're awed by his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness, the closer that you and I be, you know, come to uh, into the presence of perfection, the easier it is for us to begin to see all of those flaws that we're blinded to on a regular basis. 
And so these men were guilty of hypocrisy. They were blind to it. And Jesus, in his compassion and his sympathy for them and their state that they were in, that condition, began to share with them what they themselves did not even recognize of their own life. In verse 37, it says, When Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to lunch. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He says, You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He says, But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay, you know, you pay your tithe of mint and rue and of every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. It says, And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well, for you weigh men down from your burdens to bear. And you also yourselves don't even touch the burdens with any of your own fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may to this generation be charged. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. You know, if you recall from our last message, Jesus in the first section of this particular passage in verses 37 through 44, pummeled the Pharisees with three power-packed woes. You know, having done some boxing in my youth, you know, I was reminded as I read this section of, you know, two left jabs and then a right powerful hook. You know, he jabbed them. As you look at this, you see he jabs them when he says, you know what, hey, you know, you're, you're tightwad tithers. You know, you look good on the outside, but in the inside, you're, you're cheap towards God and even towards other people. You know, it's kind of a quick left jab. And then he hits him again with this jab where he says that, you know, you're prideful lovers of prominence and position. You like the greetings in the marketplaces. You like to be recognized by people. You want to be honored by people. And yet you don't even care what God thinks of you. And if that wasn't enough, he follows with a, you know, with a right cross that kind of knocks him and staggers him against the ropes. And he says, and on top of that, you know what, you're like, you're like tombs. You know, you're, you're, you're dead bones within. And, and on the outside, people come to you for advice about how to grow closer to God but they don't even realize how far away you are from God and how dead you are in your sins. And you don't lead anybody to God, but your advice, your counsel leads them even further away. And he just pummels them. You know, it's like that right cross knocks them up against the ropes and they're perfectly timed. They're spiritual punches that has them reeling against the ropes and they're caught off guard. And, and in the midst of all of this taking place, 
one of the lawyers or the scribes, you know, says to him, he says, hey, but, what, but when you say these things, you insult us too. It's like it, it, you would think if there was ever a time to just step back and mind your own business, it was like, you know, pop, pop, bam. These guys are like going like this and, and somebody steps and go, hey, what about us? Talk about leading with your chin. Hey, you know, go, go for it. And I'm just, it's just amazing to me. It's go, well, you know, why? Well, you know, they walked right into the middle of this. This guy invited Jesus to, to warn them as well as the Pharisees. You know, and it's important to understand that these woes, you know, I've talked to a few people and it's, and, it's, and it's important at this point I want to bring out that these woes were not delivered with anger by Jesus. I think so often when we read scripture and we see him confront the religious leaders, we see him confront hypocrites, we see him confront prideful, arrogant people, that we, we see him kind of going toe to toe. But, but as I read this and as I study the words and as I recognize that the word woe is, is an expression of, of sympathy and compassion. You know, when I think about, you know, the mission and the, and the mercy of Jesus, you know, was it not Jesus as he hung on the cross after he had been beaten brutally and as he was hanging on the cross, was it not Jesus who said and cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is it not the word of God that tells you and I who have come to faith in Christ to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us? You know, it's important that we recognize and understand that Jesus in his compassion would look at, you know, the, the, the fallenness and brokenness of man. Even in the arrogance and the pridefulness and the, and the, the hypocrisy but to recognize how lost that they were. If you think about the backdrop of hell, the backdrop of an eternity separated from God, how can anyone ever be so angry at a person who is is dead in their sins and not feel broken and compassionate and sympathetic? You know, it's the Word of God that tells pastors and preachers to, to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove and rebuke, to exhort with great patience and instruction. Not with anger, not with bitterness, not with the sense of contempt that, you know, how stupid are you people? Don't you see this? Don't you get this? You know, we don't need to be beating each other up. We're, we're to, we're to re- reprove and rebuke and exhort and encourage, but we're to do it with great patience and instruction. And what Jesus is doing here is a perfect example. He's saying, woe to you. Let me help you to see that what you believe about yourself is so far from the truth that you are eternally, you are in in danger of eternal condemnation. You are hanging over the precipice of the lake of fire. Your feet are being singed as I speak to you and you don't even see it. But if you'll repent and your hearts will be open and you'll listen to the words of my counsel, I can help you to to see the difference between wrong and right, the difference between darkness and light. If you will open your heart and receive my instruction and throw yourself upon my mercy, you will find it in your time of need. We need to recognize and understand that God's people are to be merciful people, loving people, compassionate people, people that have a spirit of gentleness, but also instruction. And I'm not talking about compromising truth. We're never talking about that. But in presenting truth in a way that people sense our love and concern for them. Don't you see 
the danger that you're in. They didn't see it. You know, the Lord is patient, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And they didn't see it. And He was trying to help them to see it. We don't see it. And His Word tries to help us see it so that we can turn from sin and turn to Him for forgiveness and and move us in the right direction. The Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that shows us where we are. And sometimes where we are is not where we're supposed to be. And it's a light to our path to show us where He wants to take us. You know, these three woes or these warnings to the Pharisees focused on their hypocritical behavior. If you'll notice, He said that, you know, outwardly you appear to be generous to people. But truth be known, that God knows all things, your hearts are far from God. You're not doing this because you're doing it as, a, as an offering to what God has given to you. You're doing it thinking that, hey, you know what, if I do this, I'll be recognized by people. Outwardly, you appear to be pious people who are religious people. But inwardly, I know the only reason you do what you do is so that people will recognize and honor and worship you instead of your God. Outwardly, you know, you appear spiritually alive, but you are dead in your sins. Outwardly, you look great. Inwardly, you're a mess. And I can't think of a better illustration for my physical condition right now. Every time I hear people tell me, but you look great. That's because you're just looking at the outside. But my CT scans and everything else say, man, I'm a mess. And, and, and it's a great spiritual illustration. You know, in the CT scans this week, and, and I love when I get these kind of reports. Uh, uh, this week, uh, the, the tumors are growing in my lungs, uh, which, we, you know, we understood that was going to be the case. But then there's also a spot in my liver. Well, as they look at it and they confer with it, some people said that, you know, it's possibly cancer. It could be cancer, probable cancer. These other three guys said, no, we don't think that's what it is. And so it's three to two so far, Uh, you know. And, and, you know, and we know that the majority is always right, (laughs) as long as the majority has God on their side. And, and so, you know, you know, we just kind of go, okay, Lord, you know, what is it? And, and we don't know. Uh, and this week, just to give you a quick update, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing back from um, a physician who does this procedure where they stick a needle through your chest into your lung to burn the tumors. And, you know, and, and this is how far God has brought us when I think stuff like that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you know, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Like, Lord have mercy. But, uh, you know, so we're, we're, we're at that stage. But the other thing is that, you know, they said, well, let's wait another three weeks or whatever. Have another scan and we'll see what's going on with your liver. And so I just ask that we continue, that you would continue to pray. I thank you so much for your prayers and fasting. And, you know, I, and what I do know is this. If God chooses not to heal me, it's not because we haven't been asking him to. And so we're content in whatever his answer is. But until then, it's like, Lord, you know, well, that's our prayer, that, we, that you would heal me so I can continue to preach your word and minister to your people. Uh, if you choose not to, it's not going to be because we have not, because we ask not, because we're going to keep on asking. We're going to keep on knocking. We're going to keep on seeking. And so, you know, we praise him. And, and I take comfort in knowing that, you know, God knows. And, and he continues to remind me that when nobody else does, uh, he does. And, uh, and that's a great place to be. So that's where we are.
and uh, we'll let you know how the, uh, the rest turns out. Uh, but the lawyers and the scribes, in the meantime, if we get back to the text, were about to get a spiritual pummeling for the way that they abused God's word, in this case, the Old Testament. You know, the reason, if you, if you notice, you have to ask the question, as I did when you're reading through this, you go, well, why were they so insulted because of the pummeling that they saw the Pharisees get? And the reason they were, they were so insulted is because if you understand the, 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 uh, the job description of, of the scribes of the lawyers was to codify the word of God. And so they would take God's laws, they would codify it, and then the Pharisees would then live out what their interpretation of the law was. So if the Pharisees were guilty of the sin of hypocrisy, they were guilty because the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that told them, this is how you're supposed to live your life. And so that's why they were highly insulted by that. And as we go through this, you know, they, they were looking at this and the response is pretty evident by what he had to say. He goes, you know, when you say these things, you affront us. The New International says, when you say these things, you insult us too. The Amplified, when, when I'm in saying this, you reproach and outrage and affront even us. And so they recognized that the Pharisees were highly insulted by being called, you know, these external things that were dirty on the inside. And so they too were insulted, and rightly so, because they're the ones that told the Pharisees, this is how God wants you to live your life. And so they're all in a mess here, and that, which is exactly what we discover in Jesus' response to the lawyers, starting with verse 45. He says, but woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them and the finish of the pharisees and on one verse 46 he says but woe to you lawyers also or as well he says for you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even lift a finger to do those he says woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them We'll talk a little more about that as we get to it. And woe to you in verse 52. You've taken away the key of knowledge and you did not enter yourselves and those who were entering in, you hindered. So if we go back to verse 46, the first thing that we see is that his response to the lawyers was, you know, you're adding to the burdens of the people. You know, instead of helping folks in their pursuit of God, they made God even more impossible to find by instructing their view of him. You know, they made this endless maze of regulations that they added to Scripture and their interpretation of what God said eventually grew to over 6,000 laws in addition to the plain truth of Scripture. And so, you know, and I think sometimes when people go, wow, you know, the Ten Commandments are tough. Could you imagine what it was like to live in a culture where they added to what God had already clearly revealed and said, now on top of what God has revealed, we have added 6,000 interpretations of we think what God has revealed. You know, and some of them were amazing, you know, and to make matters worse, they didn't even raise a finger to help people with those burdens. You would think if they would have thought those burdens were important, that they would have did everything they could to come alongside people to bear one another's burdens, to help one another in their walk with God, to help one another bear these burdens that they had laid on people. But the reality of it was, is that he says, you know what, not only do you not help people, but you don't even obey the same things you tell other people to do. Because they became masters at evading their own regulations and rules. 
And the games that they played are just nonsensical. And you, you can take some time sometimes to study some of these rules and regulations as they pertain to the Sabbath, as they pertain to ceremonial hand washings, you know, all of these things and, and what they added to it. You know, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath and, and yet you're not supposed to travel. But they would say, okay, but you can travel 100 yards. And if you travel more than 100 yards, what you had to do is if you take two meals to that end of that road and you put two meals there, then technically that's where you live now because that's where your substance is. And so then you can go ahead and eat there and then you can go another hundred yards. And if you had to go somewhere really far that day, you just laid out during the week where your food was going to be. So if you got to this point, you'd stop there and go, okay, this technically, oh, then you go to the next point. And it just became a game, you know, that God said, you know what, you people are nuts. I mean, what are you doing? I mean, what I tell you is so clear and, 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 and you're adding more and more stuff and, and you're adding more and more of a burden. And, and, you know, it's like the height of hypocrisy is to tell people this is what God requires of you, but I don't have to do any of that myself. The height of hypocrisy is saying you need to follow these regulations, but we found a way around them that we don't even share with you. I mean, that, that, that's just the height of hypocrisy. You know, what a tragedy it is when, when ministers of God's word create more problems for God's people who already have problems enough. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm not talking about compromising God's truth, but what I'm talking about is placing personal convictions or one's interpretation on an equal or even higher plane than the word of God. And that's legalism. And it's a burden to people. And it's not right to do that. Jesus said, woe to you, because you've added even more of a burden to people by adding your own interpretations as if somehow they're equal with what God had to say. And sometimes you even put them on a higher plane. It's more important you obey our interpretation of God's laws than even God's laws themselves. He says, woe to you. I spoke to a young man recently who came to an angel chapel last Saturday night. He told me that he had lost Interest in spiritual things due to the demands that were placed upon him by a cult-like religious system he had gotten involved with in his youth. And here's what he said. He said, you know what? There were so many, too many rules and regulations. It was impossible to keep them. I got wore out. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know what? They added to the burdens where they were so worn out trying to obey not only God's commandments, but this interpretation of God's commandments that they were like, I can't do this anymore. He said, woe to you. Look what you've done to people. His experience, unfortunately, is echoed by many. In a book that I just recently completed, I found an excerpt that tied into this passage as I was going through it. And I thought, oh, this, is, this is exactly how in our culture these things are reflected. The, the, this warning that Jesus has. He says, at the moment, Deloy is driving his third-hand Chevy on a dirt road on the outskirts of town. One of his two wives and eight of his 17 children are riding in the back. Suddenly, he hits the brakes and the van lurches to a stop on the shoulder. And he says, now, that's an interesting sight over there. Sizing up the wreckage of a television satellite dish behind some sagebrush off to the side of the road. Says, looks like somebody had to get rid of their television. Hauled it out of town and dumped it. Why, you may ask? Well, members of that religion, he explains, are forbidden to watch television or read magazines or newspapers. 
The temptations of the outside world loom large, however, and some members of that faith inevitably succumb. As soon as you ban something, you make it incredibly attractive. People will sneak into St. George or Cedar City and buy themselves a dish, put it up where it can't easily be seen, and secretly watch TV during every free moment. Then one Sunday, Uncle Rulin will give one of his sermons about the evils of television. He'll announce that he knows exactly who has one and warn that everyone who does is putting their eternal souls in serious jeopardy. Every time he does that, a bunch of satellite dishes immediately get dumped in the desert. Like this one here, for two or three years afterward, there won't be any television in town, but then gradually the dishes start secretly going up again until the next crackdown. People try to do the right thing, but you know, after all, they're only human. You know, and I read that and we laugh in, 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 a, in a sympathetic and sad way that there are religious organizations and cults and groups of people who would dictate whether a person should watch TV or read a newspaper or have a magazine or if you do, which, which, which subscription is it okay? And if I do have a TV, what channel can I watch? And if I do go to the movies, what, what rating of a movie is it okay with you, pastor, that I go to see? And you know what? Let me tell you something. Those are, those are things as, as we work out our, our salvation and fear, fear and trembling, we're saved in a moment of time when we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ and His death on the cross and the power of his resurrection but to him that knows the right thing to do and, do to, and doesn't do it to him it is sin and, and those are questions that none of us can answer for one another but it's personal with God and, and we can't regulate that and you can see what happens you can see why there's 6,000 regulations here that the scribes came up with and, and, and there are many you know, legalistic churches that will do that you know, you can't do this, 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 and this, and this. You can't wear this and that. You can't play cards. You can't dance. You can't drink. You can't do this. You can't do all these things. And they'll give you lists that go on and on and on. And even as I say that, some of you are offended because you believe that those are things people shouldn't do that are godly people. And all I say to you is that you need to be very careful that you don't impose the interpretation of God's rules and His, his laws that, that you have come to conviction about on others but we're to instruct in truth with patience and gentleness and it's interesting as we go through this and look at it but the reality of it is is that you know when jesus later said hey come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened and i'll give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was issuing an invitation to all of these people who were burdened by the, the, the regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's saying, listen, you know what? Come to me and I will remove all of those burdens from you. And I will replace those heavy burdens that you can't endure, that you can't hold up. And I will replace them with a light burden, a yoke, a burden that is easy to bear. And let me tell you something. There is a burden for God's people to bear. But it's the appropriate burden. And it's a burden that comes with the word of God. It's a burden that says, live your lives in a manner that's worthy of your calling. It's a burden that says, listen, if you used to lie, now tell the truth. If you used to steal, now go work hard. If you used to slack off at work, work heartily unto the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom you serve. If you used to gossip, stop talking about people. If you are a slanderer, don't slander any longer. If you are a person that held grudges, you know what? Now forgive and be kind and tender hearted. 
See, there is a burden that comes with being a Christian, but it's an appropriate burden because the Spirit of God empowers us and enables us to live that way. But no one was ever called by God to live the burdens of those things that we believe that we should put on other people. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to help one another in the areas that God is very clear about. We're to honor God. We're to praise God. We're to worship God. And we're to encourage one another to do that. We're to live a life that's different than the life that we lived when we lived in darkness. That's why there's such a contrast between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are dead in their sins and those who are alive to God. But it's an appropriate burden. My prayer is that I never add to your proper burdens by imposing personal agendas. But that I always come alongside to help you to bear those burdens in a manner that's appropriate before God. And a a story that I heard recently that always kind of keeps us in the back of my mind is how, you know, sometimes pastors get this little pet peeve and they'll pound people until they become like they want them to be instead of becoming who God wants them to be. And uh, there's a story that was told of a pastor who, who was not very popular because of that type of attitude towards people. And one Sunday he announced from his pulpit, the Lord Jesus has told me, that he has work for me to do elsewhere and I'm going to pick up and move to another church. And at that time, everybody in the audience stood up spontaneously and they sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> I love that. That's just a reminder that, you know, I never want to get to the point where people say, what a friend we have in Jesus. There we go. Just or you know, just bear our burdens. And, uh, you know, but on a serious note, you know, rather than to, to add such a burden you know, we are to give ourselves to the reading and study of the Word of God. You know, God's people, our delight should be in the laws of God. And on those laws, we're to meditate day and night. And the laws of God, we, we, as we meditate, we're like a tree that's planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And our leaf never perishes. And it doesn't wither. And whatever we do, we prosper before God because we have a love for His Word. See, if you know God's Word, then you know when somebody starts to like slap legalism on you. When you know God's Word, you know when somebody tries to take it to the next step because you can discern that and you see that and you understand that. My prayer as a pastor, our prayer as a church, is that we bear one another's appropriate burdens and that we never lay out burdens that God never intended any of us to ever have to bear. Second woe, as we look at these lawyers, he says, woe to you, for you build the tombs in verse 47. You build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve, and that's the word we're looking at, the approval of what had taken place. Not only did they add to the burdens, but they approved of what their fathers did who killed the prophets. It says, for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them uh, prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. And some of us are thinking, wow, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty tough. To be blamed or, you know, to have charges brought against you for what, you know, your forefathers did generations before that. But what he was saying to them very clearly was, you know what, but you approve of what they did. And how I know you approve of what they did is the way that you treat God's prophets today. 
See, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, when you look at the, the scribes, they were cohorts. You know, they built tombs to celebrate dead prophets. You know, but as the text indicates, you know, they were in full approval of the fact that they died. Also, as a side note, it says from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, you know, it, it's, and here Jesus, you know, he endorses the entire body of the Old Testament. For the blood of Abel was shed in the book of Genesis. And when we look at Second Chronicles, we recognize that the blood of Zechariah, uh, not the, the priest uh, you know, that, that was there that was killed, he was saying that from the whole body of the Old Testament, from, from, you know, from Abel to Zechariah and everybody in between, it was an endorsement of Scripture. And, 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 the, and the, the, the Jewish Old Testament ends with Second Chronicles. So if there's any confusion, it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, but that, that, that was the body of it. And he's saying, hey, you know what? You are approving what had happened. And what he's saying is this. Oh, you guys built elaborate tombs to these prophets that were killed by your fathers. But what really he was saying is, is that, you know, you build great tombs to ensure that the prophets will never return to trouble you. It's like you, you love the prophets and, and the only prophets they loved were dead ones. They didn't like the live ones. They didn't like the ones that God sent to them to preach truth. They had one of the greatest prophets ever in John the Baptist that came to him and said, you better repent and you better turn from your sin and turn to God and trust in his Messiah, his Savior. They didn't like him. Every prophet that ever confronted them about their sin, they killed. So they didn't, they're not doing anything different than what their fathers did. And yet when they were dead, they made these big monuments about these great prophets, but they hated them just as much as their fathers did. And that was another sign of hypocrisy. You say on the outside how you honor these prophets who spoke God's truth and were killed by your fathers, when in actuality, you know, actually what you're doing is you got prophets coming to you teaching the truth of God, and you want to kill them too. And that was the prophecy. Notice what he said. He said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. In other words, what he was saying is very simple. They were word killers. Because what was the message of the prophets? Thus saith the Lord. They came to them declaring the message of God. Thus saith the Lord. You're dirty in this area. You need to repent and turn from your sins. You need to throw yourselves on the mercy of God. And they never liked being confronted by their sins. And they would ultimately kill the prophets just like their fathers did. And he was warning them ahead of time. Woe to you. You're doing the same thing that your fathers did. You're guilty of the same sin, and you are so blind to it, you think you honor the prophets with these great memorials. You know what? You're on, you're on the edge of wanting to kill them too. And all you have to do is, is read through the book of Acts and realize, you know what? That's how the apostles were treated. Think about it. They went out and preached Christ and Him crucified, the Savior of the world, and Him raised from the dead, and they saw Him alive, and they went out to warn all of these people that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the promised one of God, the Savior of the world. And how were they treated? How, were they, how did they respond to Him? They beat Him, and they put Him to death. He warned them. That's what you're going to do. And they did it anyway. See, so you think about this. They had John the Baptist the greatest prophet ever who preached before them and they didn't listen to what he said. Then Messiah, Jesus himself came. The word of God came and preached the word of God. And guess what they did to him? They killed him too. By the predetermined plan of God, but they still were instruments of his death. 
And they put him to death. And God raised him from the dead. And he's alive today. And he warned them that that's what they were going to do. You know, which leads to this sobering truth that he said. And that is that, you know what? All of these deaths will be charged against this generation. Why? Because they were even more culpable than their fathers because they had Jesus himself, the word of God, in their presence and rejected him. Then they had the message of the apostles who preached Christ crucified and resurrected and they rejected them as well. And before we're too hard on that generation, add to what they were culpable of, and we've got 2,000 years of church history preaching the truth of God's word, and how much more culpable is this generation than all of the others combined? We have the Word of God. We have it in a language that we can understand. We have many translations, excellent translations, that we can understand. We have study guides that help us to understand God's truth. How much more culpable are we if we too reject the truth of God's Word? Now, it's been said that as Americans, we love to avoid responsibility. And it becomes more and more evident every day that I live. Does anybody take responsibility for their actions? Does anybody ever say, that was my fault? I'll take responsibility. I'll pay the price. I'm sorry. Forgive me. We quickly blame so many others. It comes with sin nature. Will Rogers once remarked, he says, there are two great eras in American history. There was the passing of the buffalo, and now there's the passing of the buck. And what an indictment that is for all of us. It's not my fault. It may well be your fault. Accept responsibility. They didn't want to accept responsibility. We didn't do that. That was our fathers who killed them. Jesus said, you're no different. You're going to do the same thing. You're doing it right now. I'm preaching the truth before you, and you're rejecting me as I stand here before you. One last question before moving to the third knockout punch, and that is this. Are you a hypocrite? I said, well, Chuck, what do I have to do with, you know, the killing of prophets? Well, we can be guilty of killing God's word. We can be guilty of killing his truth. And the way we do that is by rejecting it and not living it out in our lives. We hear God's truth and we say, you know what though? But I want to keep living the way I want to live. If it means that I'm disobedient before God, then you know what? That's okay because I'll ask God to forgive me, but I know how this works. I can do what I want to do, throw out a quick forgive me, God, if I get caught or the consequences are greater than I thought. And then, you know, I can continue to do whatever it is I want to do. And the word of God says that's foolishness. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it, says Romans 6. I mean, that's that's, that's an immature uh, spiritual position. 
to say, I've always got 1 John 1, 9 to fall back. If we confess my sins, God, I know you're faithful and just to forgive them. So therefore, I can keep living any way that I want to live and know that I can always ask you to forgive me and you're going to forgive me and I can do what I want to do. And God says, that's crazy. That's like knowing you can down 911 if you fall off the edge of a cliff and go jump off. That's, that's just nuts. Nobody does that. If you slip and fall off, dial 911. But if you jump off, I'm thinking, you know, that, that just seems kind of foolish that you would think, well, I can dial 911, they'll send help. You know, we, we, we reap what we sow. And so we can be killers of God's truth by simply not living His truth in our life. And I just pray that we're not hypocrites to the world around us who we profess with our lips that we love God, we serve Him, that we're Christians, we're born again, we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Isn't that great? And isn't it even better that it doesn't change the way I live my life? It better. It must. It's not an option. And if it doesn't, you better examine yourself to see if you are really in Christ. Because the Bible says old things pass away and all things become new. The heart is now alive to God and wants to live to please Him and to serve Him, to read His Word, to absorb His Word, to live His Word. You know, if we used to lie and we lie as believers, it should convict us and we should be bothered by the Spirit of God. It says, you're not to live that way anymore. Stop it. Tell the truth. If we're lazy and if we don't take responsibility, the Spirit of God says, hey, you know what? You did do that. Own up to it. Be responsible. You know, confess your sin. Agree that what you did was wrong. If we do things that God says aren't appropriate for believers, we should stop doing them and do what is right. Don't be a hypocrite. Be obedient. And the third knockout blow is found here. When we see in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. They were avoiding the truth. And the key to knowledge is the truth of God's Word. The key to knowledge is recognizing and understanding that the Word of God is God's truth to humanity. It was bad enough that they didn't repent when confronted by their sins, but they were hindering others from finding access to the kingdom of God, which is repentance. How can they tell people to repent when they didn't repent? How can they tell people this is how we're to live if they didn't live like they were supposed to live? He's saying they were sending a conflicting message and so do you and I who don't do what is right before God in our day-to-day lives. If you are the only Christian that people know in your place of business or in your families or in your communities, in your neighborhoods, on your teams, wherever it is that God has placed you, if you are the only professing Christian And your life doesn't direct people to the kingdom of God. You are guilty of hypocrisy. I'm guilty of hypocrisy. I'm guilty of not leading people to Jesus Christ, but to hindering them from seeing who he really is. No, there's, there's a lot of practical truth here. Not everyone should teach the word of God. You know, the Bible warns of a great accountability for those who teach. You know, and James says, you know, not everybody should want to be a teacher because there is a tremendous accountability before God. And you look at this, here are people that wanted to teach, but they weren't teaching truth and they were leading people astray. And they will be held accountable for that, as all of us will be, who teach God's truth and yet do it in a way that does not lead them to greater truth. 
Not everybody should want to be a teacher. You know, unfortunately, what some people call Bible study, and I've seen it too often, is just a group of unprepared people exchanging ignorance. I mean, it just is. I mean, you've sat in on Bible studies, and it's like, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I think it means this. Oh, I think it means that. I think it means black. I think it means white. I think it means it's over here. I think it means it's over there. Oh, good answers. That's not good. That's not good answers. If it doesn't lead to God's truth, all it does is, is promote ignorance of God and His, and His Word. We've got to be very careful about that. We've got to have every person who teaches from, from the nursery all the way up to, to, to seniors. And everybody in between has got to sense a burden and an understanding that when we open the Word of God to teach truth, we better painstakingly, diligently have studied the passage and the context and the words to know and recognize what that passage, the truth is, that God wants to convey. You know, there's another side to this, though, and that's this. The scribes convinced people that nobody could understand and explain the laws of God except trained and educated professionals. And that, my friends, is, is groundwork for cults. You don't understand. You're not smart enough. You're not educated enough. You're not trained enough. And all I ask them is this. Is the Spirit of God who lives within us, can He not instruct us in the truth of God's Word? So as God's people, we've got the Spirit of God living within us who teaches us God's truth. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not in any way obliterating Christian scholarship. I think there's a place for education. But as also, you know, the other side, the flip side of this is that there are people who are educated that now think the rest of the world is too stupid to understand God's truth. And there's better be a balance in between there. Because anyone who is that educated recognizes that, you know what? And I, I remember hearing a guy who had multiple PhDs in theology, and, and, you know, and he would try to have a Bible study at his home. And they'd go around and talk about what God is teaching. What is God teaching you? And, and, you know, and he said sometimes his wife would say things that wasn't true in the context of that passage, but was true in the context of Scripture. And then he got to the point of thinking, you know, I was trying to, I'm going to try to correct her and explain the context and what that word means in the Greek and the Hebrew. And if you don't understand Greek and Hebrew, then you don't understand God's word. And he goes, and then I began to realize, you know what? The God's spirit teaches all of God's children. And there's a balance that's there that we need to recognize and understand. You know, one can earn multiple degrees awarded by human institutions and what I read in scripture and not even be gifted by God to teach the word of God. We need to recognize God's, God's giftedness. We need to recognize and understand that, you know what, that, that God gifts people and chooses to give gift or gifts as he wishes. Now, there's a responsibility. And I believe all of us have a gift from God are to exercise that gift, are, are to be trained and develop it, and they're to be out there on the battlefield of life using the gift and gifts that God has given us. Some of the greatest Bible teachers I ever heard weren't seminary trained, but were men who actually, they studied, as Ezra said, they studied the Word of God after first coming to faith in Christ. They studied the Word of God, then they lived out what they learned, and then they were able to teach God's truth. There are many who study it, have degrees, don't live it, and then try to teach it, and people walk away going, I don't know what, that, what he just said. So we need to recognize and understand that the scribes were trying to convince people, the lawyers, that they were too stupid to understand God's laws and that to trust them. And Jesus said, trust you? 
You're hindering people from coming to knowledge. You've taken away the key of knowledge, which is the Word of God. You've added all of these regulations and rules above what God had already clearly revealed. You've made it impossible for people to find me. And the key of knowledge, folks, the key of understanding Scripture is seeing Jesus on every page. If you remember from the Easter sermon, Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 that he went back through the Old Testament. And you know what? And he explained to those on the road to Emmaus how all of Scripture talks about Jesus. You want to understand Scripture, you need to see Jesus on every page. He's the key to knowledge. And that's the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. We've all heard sermons where it's like, you know, hey, there's a building program going on, and all of a sudden a guy reads, a, you know, he reads a, a, a verse, and then the whole sermon's about the building program. You know, you're going, man, that's a great passage. Wonder what it says. You'll never know because it was just an excuse to talk about the building program. I've been to places. I go, man, I was sitting there listening. I go, wow, that's, that's going to be this is a great passage. I can't wait to hear this person, you know, espouse upon the truth of God's word. You know, and then they talk about bingo Friday night. You know, and it's like, what? What in the world happened there? You know, this is the passage. That's why we like to study it verse by verse, passage by fat passage in the context, going through it. These are the woes. This is what hypocrisy is all about. He's saying, man, you've hindered people from coming to knowledge. You yourselves don't enter in and you've hindered those who are trying to get there. The warning to pastors and people like myself is God's word is do your best to present yourself to God. As one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. I will guarantee you that every passage that I study and every passage that I prepare to preach, I wrestle with and I fight with God and I try to get an understanding and I go to every means that I have available to understand the context of the passage and questions that I have that I don't have answered. I believe that you have and you want answers. And man, I'm just like, it's like, ah, but it's great. It's the best workout that I have. I feel like I'm exhausted, but you know what? It feels so great, like you've been out on a 20-mile run, and you go, oh, that feels good to get down and through it and, and, and to have something that's comprehensible and something that's understandable, that every person can walk out as God you know, convicts our own personal hearts about, I don't know where you are. You don't know where I am. We look at the external. We can think whatever we want, but God knows where, where we're at. And he's saying it, hey, you know what? Are you a hypocrite? Are you out there professing faith in Christ, but your life is so far removed from him that people who look at you can't see Jesus through the trees? You say that I love God, but you don't obey his commandments and you're compromising areas of your life where there's just blatant sin in your life that you need to repent and turn from. You know, you're hypocritical if you say anything otherwise because God knows. Are you hindering people from seeing God? Are you adding to the burdens of others by, by injecting upon them your interpretations of what you think God have you do in your life? And we do it in a whole bunch of areas. You know, I want to fast and pray for this person. You know, you should too. Well, you know what? Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. You know, if God puts that on my heart, then I will. But because you're doing it doesn't mean that I should do it. Because you're involved in this ministry doesn't mean that I should be involved in that ministry. But I should be involved in some ministry because we're saved to serve. 
And so I need to find what it is that God would have me do. And I say, praise God for what it is he's put on your heart. And we're going to come alongside you. And we're going to encourage you to be obedient to that calling. But you know what? But it's just I don't feel the same passion that you do about that. But here's something that God's put on my heart. And I say, good, then let's encourage you to get involved and to do whatever it is that God wants you to do in that area, using that gift and gifts that God's given you. See, you know, hypocrisy is not allowing God to work in the lives of others because of our own personal agenda. See, one final thought, you know, and the warning for all of us is this. We all need to know God's word. We all need to know God's word because in his word is truth. And the truth will distinguish error as it's presented to us. We can go to the truth of God's word and go, thank you, Lord, to free me from the burden that other people are adding because your word doesn't teach that. But we need to know God's word. You know, if you ever go in a Christian bookstore, there are literally hundreds of thousands of books about everything. And, and, and I say, great. I, I, I love to read. I'm, and my wife knows there's more books everywhere all over our house. And, you know, and, and we have interesting discussions about where those books all should go. But, <laughs> but they're everywhere. But one of the things that, that God has really convicted me about, and I'm just throwing it out to you, and, and, and if it's the same, then deal with it as I'm struggling with it, and that's this. You know, while it's wonderful to read all of those books about God's Word, they'll never be a substitute for God's Word. You know, we could be people who read many books, but my prayer is that we are people of one book, this book, God's book, His Word. And if we are people of God's book, then we will know the difference between right or wrong. And we will be able to discern error when it's presented to us. If we have that legacy as a church, if I leave one legacy behind, the legacy that people will fall in love with Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and His Word as the uncompromising, inerrant, authoritative, book on all of life, then I will have done well before God. I was reading through a magazine the other day and closing and putting all this together. And and this headline just grabbed me. It says, more in common, more in common than you think. Big, bold letters. And then Jesus in big, bold letters. I go, wow, this is interesting. I can't wait to read this. More in common than you think. Behold, the angel said, God has chosen you and purified you and chosen you above the women of all nations. O Mary, God gives you good news of a word from him whose name shall be the Christ or Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, honored in this world and the hereafter and one of those brought near to God. It's a quote from the Koran. And then it says this, like Christians, Muslims respect and revere Jesus. Islam teaches that Jesus is one of the greatest of God's prophets and messengers to mankind. We have more in common than you think. And I hope that anybody that heard what I just said, the Spirit of God within them cried out, that is heresy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We do not believe that Jesus Christ is one of the great prophets. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in human flesh, 
who came to this earth to die upon the cross for the sins of the world. His perfect life is a substitute for all who would call upon him for the forgiveness of their sins. We believe that Jesus Christ is God who died on the cross and is resurrected and is alive today. We believe that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men can be saved. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes unto the Father but through him. We do not believe that Jesus is a great moral teacher or a prophet or anything less than God in human flesh. Like Christians, that's nonsense. It is not like Christians who have come to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We need to be able to discern that kind of lie in the world that we live so that we can confront people with the knowledge. The key to knowledge is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and Him resurrected. Period. Amen. Praise God. And lastly, their reaction to Jesus, to his rebuke, confirmed that they were indeed hypocrites. He said, woe to you lawyers. And he goes on after that and says, and and the Bible tells us, and when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile, to question him closely on many subjects. And they plotted against him to catch him in something that he might say. Hypocrites don't want their sins exposed. It hurts their reputation. They're more concerned about what people think of them than about who they really are before God. See, hypocrites become angry when you confront them with God's truth because they're not interested in truth that will set them free. They're interested in validating the life they've chosen to live. They were hostile. They were opposed They question him, not to hear truth. They question him to try to catch him in some kind of lie so they could brand him as a heretic. They plotted, they laid traps. In every trap they laid, they fell in themselves. Instead of opposing the Lord, they should have sought his mercy. And I can't help to think that each week as we present the word of God, that there are basically three responses that are possible. One is that we become angry. Who does that guy think he is up there? Saying that to me. Calling me a hypocrite. Telling me how to live my life. Who does God think he is? Well, we think he's God. And we think as God, he has the right to tell us how we should live. Not only does he have the right to tell us how to live... But through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and him crucified and him resurrected, you know, he has earned the right for us to live in a manner that's worthy of what his sacrifice was on our behalf. It's the least that we can do considering what he has done for us. So you may be angry and all that I will hopefully patiently and lovingly tell you to consider is lay aside your preconceived notions and ask God to reveal his truth to you. You might be apathetic. Doesn't apply to me. That's what they thought. This doesn't apply to us. Our fathers killed the prophets. We didn't do it. In fact, look at these nice memorials we built to them. We honor the prophets. But it did apply to them. They were blind. They were just as guilty. They didn't see it. 
You know, so many times we're apathetic. We think, wow, man, that was a great sermon. Preach it, brother, because you know what? Not a thing you said penetrated my heart. But I'm hoping the person I came with today heard everything. And we'll be praying towards that end, right, brother? Absolutely. And then the last, in the proper response before God, is an accepting heart. God, thank you for revealing to me what I could not see so that I can ask for your forgiveness, so that I can throw myself before your throne, so that I can confess my sin. Thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank you for pointing out my weak areas. Thank you for pointing out my faults so that I can become the man of God that you would have me be. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. All throughout the context of this passage, you warn that we are to be lovers of the word of God, that if they understood your word and had sought your truth, they never would have fallen into the pits that they dug for others. The Pharisees and the scribes, if they had just opened their hearts to your truth and repented of their sin, they would have found mercy and grace in their time of need. God, that's my prayer for our people. That's my prayer for me. That you will continue to reveal to me those blind spots in my life that hinder me from being everything that you have called and chosen me to be. So that we can be holy instruments set apart for your purposes. Not to bring glory to ourself or recognition of any kind. But to share the key of knowledge which is the word of God and Jesus Christ. Him crucified and resurrected. To a world that has come to believe that all roads lead to heaven. God may we with gentleness and instruction. Continue to preach Christ and him crucified. Continue to live Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected in our very lives. And we pray these things in the most wonderful name that could ever come across human lips. In the name of Jesus. Amen.